I'm Brian Scordato, and this is the Idea to Start a Podcast, a podcast that's been called, quote, easily 10 times more useful than my MBA, which probably says more about higher education than our pod, but it was a nice review. We're going to start sending the pod along with some deeper content each week. So if you're a power listener of Idea to Startup, head to gettacklebox.beehive.com or the link in the show notes. Beehive is spelled a bit wildly. So it's gettacklebox.beehive.com. On to it. Today, we're going to remove you from being the bottleneck to your startup. I don't mean this in an accusatory way. I'm just a heavy subscriber to the Charlie Munger school of thought that the best way to be successful isn't to try to be smarter than everyone else, but to be less dumb. I'd also say that 99% of the meetings I have with entrepreneurs focus around how they can do less, not more. How they can make their startup lives easier on themselves so that they can move faster. Basically, how can they stop getting in their own way? Most early stage founders I meet are unwittingly blocking their own progress, similar to how Matthew McConaughey unwittingly blocks his progress with Sarah Jessica Parker in the 2006 rom-com Failure to Launch, which I chose to mention because it has a title that is the most startup-y of all of McConaughey's rom-coms, and it is a good segue into me issuing a formal apology. Last week, I said Interstellar was bad, and I made a few McConaughey jokes, and good lord did I hear about it. The perfect storm of idea to startup finally getting a little viral traction leading us to top out at the number three business podcast on iTunes last week, combined with our listeners apparently all being McConaughey heads, led to dozens of emails highlighted by someone conveniently named Matt M telling me that, quote, I haven't missed an episode in over a year, but I'm taking a two week break because of your movie taste. Yikes. Matt M has put me on probation. And for that reason, I will rewatch Interstellar this weekend and report back. Anyway, removing yourself as the bottleneck for your startup is pretty much a full-time job, and it's amplified at the earliest stages. There are just so many ways to trip yourself up before you get any momentum. Today, we've got three stories that'll help, three common ways people sabotage their startups and how to avoid them. I hate to be the clickbaity guy, but the last one really is the best one. It's why the episode exists. We'll do a story, then some jazz, then the other two stories, and we'll get you out of here on time. Story one, how to actually implement jobs to be done. We'll start with a standard jobs to be done story to get everyone on the same page, especially for people that are maybe familiar with the term, but less familiar with implementation. Then we'll show you the easiest way to actually start using jobs theory to get out of your own way. A few weeks back, I went on vacation with my wife and the little guy to visit my parents in upstate New York. My sister and her husband flew in too. Part of our family ritual is for my dad and I to sneak off at least one morning or evening to go fish. So on the way up, I stopped in a bait and tackle shop to load up for the week. I asked the guy in the shop what had been working, what bait had been catching fish, and he responded, better question for you. Tell me about your perfect day of fishing. This caught me off guard a bit, but I responded, well, my dad and I will probably only be able to sneak out once. We've been fishing forever, so catching lots of small fish isn't the goal. A perfect day would be one big bass we catch with a perfect cast with a high degree of difficulty. A fish worth a story. Great, he said, and brought me to the back of the store, where he grabbed a package of rubber worms, probably the cheapest things in the store, and went to the checkout desk. When he was adding up the cost of the worms on an old calculator, I asked about the layout of the store. Why is the stuff that catches the most big fish in the way back, I asked. Well, he said, because most of my customers aren't actually here to catch fish. 
Maybe they want to teach their four-year-old how to cast, in which case they want something that won't tangle and has a high likelihood of catching a little five-inch sunfish the kid's going to get pumped about. Maybe they just want to go out with friends and drink beer with a line in the water, which means I can sell them a brick. It doesn't really matter. Or maybe they just want a cool-looking lure they can show to everyone in the house and have something to talk about. Conversation piece. He continued. Most of the lures up front catch way more fishermen than fish. They're called things like the Terminator, and they cost 40 bucks, and they keep our lights on. I used to feel bad selling that stuff until I realized that that stuff actually makes people pretty happy, and that's the whole point. A lot of people just want to buy the Terminator and laugh and make Arnold Schwarzenegger jokes, and then go sit on the porch and watch the fireflies with their kids. This is Jobs Theory at Work. The guy running the bait and tackle shop knew the question to ask to get at the core of what the customer was hiring a day of fishing for. Once he knew what that high-level goal was, what a perfect day of fishing actually meant, he could figure out what bait would best help meet that goal. Customers hire a product to reach a big, often emotional, sometimes unobvious goal. Your job is to understand the customer and that goal better than anyone, to get into the nooks and crannies of why they make that decision. A great business chooses a customer that has a giant gap between the outcome current products give them and the outcome they'd actually like. These gaps are hard to find. Capitalism is efficient. But if you do find the gap, it'll be because you understand that emotional goal that other companies miss. For the record, that is what margin is. The amount someone will overpay because you understand them better than anyone else. So jobs to be done is, again, about that all-important secret that anchors your business. You either know a customer that's being ignored, a problem that's being ignored, or a customer who has a problem that's got that huge delta between how it's solved now and how they'd really, really like it to be solved. There are two hard parts to this. First, finding a secret. We're going to give you a simple and pretty wonderful tactic to help you do that now. And second, choosing a customer to start with. Choosing is hard for entrepreneurs because choosing one customer by definition means ignoring lots of others, and we have trouble stomaching that. It feels risky, even though it's far less risky than trying to build for everyone. Here is an example. About a year ago, a company applied to Tacklebox with an idea to help elderly people relocate. Lots of times, this was a single person moving from the Northeast to somewhere a little bit warmer. This is logistically tricky, especially if the person doesn't want to join an assisted living space, which many don't. The founder's idea was to productize the support system to offer and coordinate services like daily monitoring, meal prep, coffee matches, exercise, activities, and on and on, so that the person could live wherever they wanted. Basically, assisted living service without being in that facility. They partner with a real estate broker in South Carolina, a popular destination for this customer, to have a central hub for all the services they would offer. Lots of people she interviewed loved the idea because her customer wanted to live on their own and their kids loved the idea of the services. She'd even sent a number of them potential properties and done some early work for free. But a year later, despite all the promising leads, she'd had zero customers. When she'd asked why no one she'd interviewed had worked with her, she couldn't get a straight answer. When she circled back with people who were once potential customers but had found new living situations without her, she kept hearing the same thing. The properties you sent me didn't have the right amenities. When she pushed on what that meant, one thing came back over and over. You didn't show me anything with a pool. This had been a conscious decision for safety and cost reasons and because most of the people she'd worked with didn't seem like they were about to be jumping in a pool and swimming. A great way to get to the core job to be done for a customer is the old 5-why method, 
Basically, just keep asking why until you get to first principles. Our founder tried this with the pool people. The conversations all went something like this. Quote, you mentioned that you've got a pool now and that was a big deal for you. Why? Well, it's always nice to have a pool. Why is that? Do you swim? No, but people like pools and that's important. Why? It usually only took two whys to get to the answer. Usually something like, quote, well, really, my grandkids love pools and I want them to want to come and see me. I don't want it to be a chore. I want them to want to come to this place like a vacation and a pool means vacation. And there it was. A group of customers wanted to make sure it was easy and ideally a treat, not a punishment for their grandkids to come and visit. Multiple people even offhandedly said things like, quote, I'd move to Disney World if I could. I just don't want it to be a burden for them to come visit. They weren't worried about the added services they'd gain. They were worried about the thing they were about to lose, proximity to their grandkids. So our founder began focusing solely on the problem for that customer. Now, that's not a massive secret by any means. You probably could have guessed that that was the goal for lots of elderly people relocating. But the tricky part isn't always noticing the job to be done. It's having the discipline to lean into a differentiator once you find it. And where possible, adding more circles to that core differentiator to amplify the value your first customers get and to decrease the number of people you're building for. Your goal early on is always fewer customers, more value. So the founder leaned in. She found elderly people in the Northeast clustered around airports with direct flights to Charleston, South Carolina. She found places within 40 minutes that had pools and other amenities kids would love. Her service included free car service for six round trips to the airport and back, specifically for kids flying in on their own before they could drive. The marketing broke through with messaging like, quote, we'll find you a place that's easy for your grandkids to get to and will be like a vacation for them every time they come. That is what mattered, not the meal prep, although once her customer was confident the grandkids would love the place, the other stuff became more important. When done well, jobs theory gives you clarity around a hyper-specific and differentiated message that can permeate, and that is the only type of message a new company can survive with. The way to build trust is to say through your messaging, I see you and I know what you want and no one else does. Jobs gives you permission to focus on a customer. The work, the five whys, the interviews, the tests, isn't really the hard part. The discipline to choose is, and that is where founders get in their own way. You've got to start small to get big. You're deceiving yourself if you think you can handle more than one type of customer's job to be done early on. And as Matthew McConaughey says in what I'm sure is a great movie called Failure to Launch, deception is a poison. It's like margarine. Again, I haven't seen it, but don't tell Matt M that. I can't lose him for another week. Now, let's get to the two other things you're doing to hamstring yourself. After, a little smooth jazz. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job and want to test out the former before you leave the latter, come and work with us. Apply at GetTackleBox.com. Over 400 startups have tested and built ideas through our program, and those businesses are now collectively worth over a billion dollars. Our program helps you prioritize and execute, and our members and me and the team keep you accountable and give you feedback along the way. Come build with us at GetTackleBox.com. Back to it. Run towards the rain. The best path you can take as an entrepreneur is the buffalo path. I think I've mentioned this before, and I believe it's courtesy of Shireen from Between.Health, a great company, by the way. Apparently, when buffalo see a storm coming, they run directly into it. 
The idea is that the shortest path to the other side of the storm is running full speed right through it. For some reason, I can't get that visual out of my head, so much so that I've got a Buffalo sticker on my desk now. As an entrepreneur, you'll be most successful if you run directly towards whatever is most uncomfortable to you. The reason is that humans are PhDs at avoiding discomfort and uncertainty. We'll choose unhappiness over discomfort every day of the week, which means the uncomfortable path is the empty one. If you do the thing most people won't do, you'll end up the place most people never get. That is the way. I have a simple prioritization technique for our founders at Tacklebox. I ask them which potential task makes them most uncomfortable, and then we do that thing. We even have dedicated blocks of time called uncomfy hours to do it in. Prioritizing the uncomfortable stuff is hard for two reasons, and both of them are obvious but tricky. First, doing uncomfortable stuff is uncomfortable. It takes a lot of effort and willpower and isn't a long-term strategy because of the second reason. That willpower is finite. It's like a cup of coffee that gets replenished every day, but when it's gone, it's gone. You can maybe improve it on the margins and you can sequence your day to do the things that require willpower while you've got it, but really your willpower reservoir is what it is. And we don't want to do the same amount of uncomfortable stuff other people do anyway. We want to do 10 times more than that. So to get out of your way as an entrepreneur, you need to get out of your way as an entrepreneur meaning you need to take the onus off you and your willpower for the uncomfortable things. You need to build systems to amplify the uncomfortable stuff. You need to make sure that your willpower's cap isn't the bottleneck to make sure it's irrelevant. Here's a story that'll hopefully give you some inspiration as to what this could look like. During the earliest days of your startup, the goal is finding a secret that can anchor a business. Most entrepreneurs think you show up to your startup with this secret, but you don't. The magic happens after you thrash around with customers for a while, not before. You might come in with the outline of a secret, but the details and development and evolution of that secret are forged through customer interactions. So the early days become a race to those interactions. The faster you can thrash around with customers, the faster you get to a real secret. A year or two ago, we had a Tacklebox member who was obsessed with houseplants, to a weird degree. I know he listens to the pod, so I mean this in the nicest way possible, but the guy loved plants. His initial secret, the one he showed up with, was that plants were too expensive. He had two dozen Monsteras in his basement under grow lights that had all come from one Monstera he had cut a branch off of and replanted a whole bunch of times. He did the same with succulents and fig trees and all the other popular plants he saw us silly millennials paying the sill a ton of money for. His supply cost, in his words, was one plant and grow lights. If he passed off shipping to the customer, he'd be all profit, even with low prices. I was skeptical, as this doesn't seem like a fundamental product secret, but I told him to try to sell the Monsteras in his basement to someone to see. So he began trying to sell his plants online. It turns out getting in front of customers who want a Monstera is extremely hard. SEO is pricey and he had no other channels. He realized he needed some more insight from customers. How did they find and buy Monsteras and fig trees and succulents now? He needed to thrash around a little bit, but thrashing is uncomfortable. So he hired someone off of Fiverr to log into his company Instagram account and DM people who posted a succulent or fig tree or Monstera picture with certain hashtags. He paid $25 for 100 DMs each day. He shifted the messaging in those DMs, but it was always some version of, quote, I love your fig tree or Monstera or whatever. I'm looking for some advice on my business that'll help people grow a collection like yours. Can I send you a succulent for a 10 minute call? 
For the record, I don't really love this copy, but at scale, it worked. He wound up getting around 10 yeses per day and scheduled 50 FaceTimes over a two-week period. He used FaceTimes that he could see people's plants. The succulents cost him about 5 bucks to send, so it was about $250 total for 50 calls. On the calls, he dug in a bit on the problems these customers had and pretty quickly learned that finding cheap plants for these people was not an issue, but keeping them alive was. He asked them to show him the dying plants over FaceTime, and when they did, he quickly diagnosed them with root rot, something I'd never heard of, but something that is apparently the cause of 80% of potted plants dying. Basically, the soil gets too compact, and if a plant gets too much water, it won't drain and the roots rot. Most people on the calls knew about root rot, but they had trouble finding soil that stopped it. Lots of them actually made their own chunky soil with rocks and sticks and things, but this was particularly hard, especially if you lived in the city. After the calls, he sent a DM to the 50 people he spoke with on the phone with an offer for a bag of super chunky soil that fought root rot, a subscription plan, a bag a month, for 20 bucks. 28 of them said absolutely, where do I sign? The rest were excited and said they'd probably reach out soon. Thrashing around gets you to a secret. Your entrepreneurial plan should not require some Herculean amount of willpower. Not because you shouldn't be ambitious, but because your willpower should be a drop in the bucket with respect to the number of uncomfortable things you do. Here is the process. Start by identifying the uncomfortable stuff you're avoiding, then split it into two buckets. First, stuff that would be dramatically improved if you did it, and second, stuff that you could outsource for 80% as well as you could do it. Find a way to get the second group off your plate and seriously rethink most of the stuff in the first group. Paraphrasing Mark Cuban from a Shark Tank episode I watched half asleep while feeding a baby, I haven't ever met a successful entrepreneur who was a perfectionist. You're usually way less important than you think, a lesson I've learned the hard way dozens of times. Discomfort is the path, but systems are the way to walk it. And finally, the most important one, by far, the reason this episode exists. Courage. A friend of mine passed away last week. This section is dedicated to him and how he lived his life. Simon, you are sorely missed. The world is a full shade darker without you. I had an old boss back in the corporate venture days who anchored a lot of the way I think about startups in life. There were a handful of us straight from MBA folks, and we'd have sort of impromptu meetings in the hall or as we waited for a bigger meeting to start. He'd always pepper us with questions, but I remember one he'd ask more than the rest. What would you do today if you knew it would work? It's actually a really hard question to answer. I remember we would all rack our brains for something big and ambitious that would push our projects forward and impress him. It might have been something like cold emailing the top universities to see if I could get intros to all the PhDs working on new tech so that I could start relationships early. But he'd always push back and say, ah, that's not ambitious enough. Come on, there's no chance that what you're doing won't work. Think bigger. What will really, really matter? When you finally did find something he felt was up to snuff, he'd say, okay, how are we doing it this week? You always knew that was coming, but he'd still kind of fool you, getting you to suggest something wild and realizing, shit, I gotta actually do this. But once you'd said it, you just sort of pieced together how you could make it work. The progress was extraordinary, and the downside, the things we were so worried about, were never relevant. It was all a weird story we'd told ourselves. We tried the riskiest things we could think of, and the worst case scenario was always that it didn't work quite as well as we'd hoped, but the upside was uncapped. I remember one day he was pushing another MBA guy to be more ambitious. 
He pushed and pushed and pushed, and finally the guy broke and shouted, fine, I would propose to my girlfriend. My boss cracked into a huge smile and said, all right, let's plan it. The engagement happened at the end of the month. This is the ultimate way to remove yourself as the bottleneck. Because whatever you think failure is, it isn't. It's likely nothing. We build up stories about the downside, but they're exactly that, stories. What if we go after something and it doesn't work? What'll everyone say? Probably nothing. They're worried about themselves. They're not worried about you. What if I quit my job and pursue this idea and it falls flat? Well, you'll probably get your old job back if you want it, but you probably won't because you'll be overqualified for it now and you'll have new skills and a new network and you'll do something you really like doing. The problem is never that you aren't being too ambitious. It's the opposite. We outweigh risks and think small when thinking big is usually just a matter of, as my boss used to say, figuring out the logistics. So the last one for today is courage. Do something that really matters and take a big swing because that's how you get talented people excited enough to want to work with you. That is how you keep yourself interested. And all this stuff is going to be hard. You might as well try for something that, if by chance it does work, makes a dent. No need to push the ambitious stuff to later. You don't know how long you've got. This was the Idea to Startup podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job, apply at gettacklebox.com. We'll respond in 72 hours and could be working with you on your startup by the weekend. Have a great week. 